0: Living a discipleship life daily. What are the daily disciplines a disciple needs to enact to be effective as a disciple? Carolyn said something the other day that really struck a chord with me. Before each service, we, as a team, we gather out the back in that kitchen over there and we pray over the service and over the worship and over treehouse. So, out of around, let's say, if there's ten of us, maybe five of us will. Consistently pray. Let's put it that way. Pray every single week. Uh, the rest of us just stand there with our hands clasped in front of us like this. And we, I guess the only way I know that is if I'm opening my eyes and looking at everybody else and completely one of those people myself, which I am. Um, and Carolyn said something. She said, I'm not sure why more of our guys don't pray. You know, we're commanded to pray. So yeah, I'm one of those hand claspers normally, and while others pray, I keep my mouth shut normally. Uh, sometimes I'm not praying simply because I'm nervous, and everybody else in that circle is so eloquent and beautiful with their prayers, and then mine come out sounding like something I don't want to describe from a pulpit. But God says, if we listen and read his word, he says, Proverbs 29:25, fear of men will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Sometimes I don't pray, if I'm being honest, because I have my eyes open, because I'm distracted. Uh, Charlie or Henry will do something that catches my eye, or I'll simply just be somewhere else with my mind, thinking about what I'm playing, I have to tune my guitar something. But in his word, God says, Psalm 119.15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Sometimes I don't pray maybe, because I just don't really feel like it, if we get down to the Core of it. I just don't I don't wanna I don't want to say stuff out loud. I don't want to do it. But God says, 1 Thessalonians 5 16 to 18, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Colossians 4 2 continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Romans 12 12, rejoice in hope, be patient. In tribulation, be constant in prayer. Matthew 18:20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And then there are times where I do pray, like today. Considering my intro to this sermon, I was darn sure I prayed something today, in there and up here before worship. Um, <laughs> but the point of this—what point am I making with this? We are without excuse. God doesn't issue, issue suggestions. He doesn't say, do this if it's the mood strikes you. Jesus said, John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, keep my commands. It's simple, right? Yet we, all of us, really struggle with a bunch of those commandments time and time again. God commands us to do something. We know he does, and then we go and do the opposite which is what Paul talks about in his famous writing in uh, Romans 7 he says Romans 7:20 now if i do what i do not want to do it is no longer i who do it but it is a sin it is sin living in me that does it what paul is talking about here is the flesh though we are dead to sin when we accept jesus christ into our hearts we still have the flesh and those habit patterns that sickly ugly old man that keeps on trying to draw us back into sinful behavior So what are we to do if we're locked in this tug-of-war? So on one side, we've got our flesh, and on the other side, we have God's will. What are we gonna do if we're locked like this between them? We have to crucify the flesh. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So as I'm standing there in that prayer circle, And I'm thinking to myself, you know what, I'm going to pray something about love. Love, you know, that covers a lot of bases. I'll probably do something about love. And then, you know, as you go around the circle, right next to you is that super eloquent person who steals your prayer. That's normally my wife. So I'll be like, okay, I'm going to pray about, I've got to play guitar today, I'll pray about that. And then she prays about the guitar and steals my prayer. And then I panic. I'm like, what do I pray then? I've got nothing? I had that subject and now I have nothing left. And so that's my flesh. And it's screaming at me, run, hide. You're about to be discovered as a fraud. Or, who cares? You know what? You don't have to say anything. It's just words before the service. Everyone else has said some stuff already. You're fine. Don't worry about it. Or, man, I could go a coffee about now. Or, did I leave the lawnmower on at home? If I'm crucifying my flesh, then I pray aloud. Because I don't need to fear man. I don't need to f- focus on the distraction. I need to focus on my one true love. And I do this by doing as He commands. So, today, I'm going to be speaking to you about cultivating disciplines in your life. Last week, Lena spoke on what those disciplines were. And today, we're going to start to really practice them. What are some practical tips and actually walking out into those disciplines? because that's what crucifying the flesh is, it's discipline. Discipline that we have to cultivate. Do you guys ever notice that the word discipline and the word disciple are very, very similar? And I thought, man, that's not a coincidence, let's look into that. Turns out it's a coincidence, (laughs) unfortunately, because that would have fit right in here, but maybe it's not. Crucifying the flesh is walking in discipline. We have to understand this as true disciples of God, We are never going to feel like doing it. That's what the flesh is so good at. It makes us desire the opposite of God's will. And as we're learning to discern God's will, it's far easier to feel that. Because we've done that our whole lives. We've listened to the flesh. So as we're just new Christians or even older Christians, it's far easier to acknowledge those desires, the fleshly desires. And it's harder to hear the voice of God. But as we walk in the spirit and as we lean on him for all we are and crucify our flesh daily through a thousand small decisions, we free ourselves from those fleshly desires to more keenly feel God's. And as disciples, that's what we all want. A musician is not born with the ability to play music. They don't come out of the womb with one of those sweet keytars, which are the keyboard guitars strapped to their back, ripping solo out of the womb. That doesn't happen. They're given the desire to play and a capacity to learn quickly. They're given those gifts. But then they have to apply those gifts in godly discipline to develop the way God wants them to. A writer is not born able to write. They have to practice and write and get stuff wrong and write poorly and write a little better and listen to God and get rejection and rejection and then maybe one little hit of, yeah, you've done something good, and then another rejection and grow in character and depth. A runner, which is what Lena talked about last week, is not born with the ability to run. Sure, they're probably quicker than everybody else at high school, but to really compete on an Olympic level, that runner has to Embed themselves in godly discipline daily. We don't consult the wiki how, how to become an Olympic athlete. We have to spend four or five or six or seven or eight years every single day working all we are towards that. That is discipline. These are all gifts that need to work in service of God. We must apply this discipline to our lives in order to grow in character and in gifting. We can't just expect to be able to study a word like that, just because we're Christian. We must discipline ourselves to do so. We can't just expect to be able to worship the way God wants us to, to be given the desire to fall on our knees because those are disciplines that we need to cultivate. If we are not disciplined, then we are shutting God out from teaching us. It's as simple as that. 1 John 2.4, whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. That's a fairly devastating scripture. I really don't want to be a liar. I want that truth. So that's what we're going to go after today. So, point number one. We have four points today. My first point is studying the word. Lena said that this is the most important discipline, and I I really agree, hearing and applying the word. But there's a little problem. Too many of us are passive readers of the word. We could argue that it's not really our fault. It's this society and culture that teaches us to read this way. The way we get nearly all our entertainment now as human beings in this Western world is through passive absorption. So we scroll through Facebook and we're like this. Right? And that kid watching that TV, what do you reckon, the facial expression on that kid? And it's like we're eating soup, but we're not even the ones with the spoon in our hands. We're not even dipping it. Someone else is feeding it and the spoon comes in. That's passively absorbing information. Very rarely do we actually have to actively invest in something for entertainment, and we're conditioned to this in our society, which is why it's hard to buck that trend. If we are to read the word and do as it commands, we need to actively read it. We can't read it like this, and then put it down, and then all the words that we just read have them fall out the other side of our heads. We need to put a cork in that ear and let those words sit And dwell in our hearts. Luke six, forty seven to forty nine says, As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it, because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed. and Its destruction was complete. So we can clearly see from that scripture that it's completely possible to read the word and not absorb it. And it's just as if we've never actually read it in the first place. The result is the same, right? Destruction. That's passive reading. So if that's passive reading, you might be asking, well, then what's active reading? I want you to take a look at this next slide. Can anyone guess whose Bible that is? Not mine, no. I wish it was mine. David. Thank you. David Thomas's Bible. So it's just one page, but I can tell you, as I flick through trying to find a good page to highlight how he reads, um, they all looked exactly the same as that. Uh, So see, I don't know whether you can see up in the top right-hand corner, he's got green there and the rest is black. That actually means something to David Thomas. And if you go to different sections, there are different colors for different things and things that he's studying, which is pretty cool. Um, I think each is, each, see each of those underlines, hours of thought and prayer, or hours of preparation for a sermon. I want my Bible to look like that Bible. Like My Bible's starting to, but it's mostly plain as day, plain as the day I bought it. I want my Bible to look like I've lived in it, you know? I want I want to live in the Word. That's what this says to me. There's this quote by John Piper. When all your favourite preachers are gone and all their books forgotten, you will have your Bible. Master it. Master it. So what does this mean to master our Bible? What does it mean to really lay a hold of this and really read it actively? Uh, David Thomas has a really, really great sermon out now on iTunes called The Sword's Edge. Um, which is about how not to read your Bible. And I totally recommend it. identifies five different types of people who read their Bibles incorrectly. Go and listen to that. It's on iTunes. Really great teaching, and it will illuminate for you guys just where maybe we're stepping into incorrect habits when we're reading our Bibles. But I want to share with you guys today just a few of the ways that I've come to deepen my Bible reading. So here's the first way. Number one. Have a plan. When we read our Bible, we have to read it completely. We can't just reread the favorite books again and again and ignore all the others with, you know, we can't just ignore Leviticus because it's long and boring, which it's not. Leviticus is awesome, everybody. Um, We can't just ignore the ones that you find a little dull and read the ones that make you feel good. The Bible, this whole thing, the whole Bible, is the living word of God. And we need to honour that through persistently reading it in its entirety. This is where having a plan will help. Read whole books from start to finish. And set yourself a goal for your Bible reading each day. I will read five chapters a day, or three. Or work yourself up to there, whatever it is. And figure out a way to read the whole book. And one great way to do that is to start at the start and finish at the finish. Um, At the moment... This is my Bible. By the way, when I first was Christian, I, don't, I didn't have a Bible for about a year. No one told me that I should get a Bible. I blame everybody else, of course. Their <laughs> faults. Um, this is actually a gift from Lena after a year of having known her. So I didn't have a Bible. That's kind of gross. I don't know why I'm mentioning that to everybody. Um, so as you can see, in my Bible reading, I've got the tassel bookmark. And that's marking where I'm up to sequentially. So I'm up to Psalms. And then I've got my little magnet bookmark here. So I've got another one where I just read um, whatever I feel led to read in the New Testament or the Old Testament, just wherever I'm at at the moment. That's marking the other section that I'm up to. Um, You don't have to read your Bible that way, but you do need to come up with a plan to read the whole thing. Why should I read the whole Bible? Because the whole Bible is the living word of God. You need to read the whole thing to live an authentic discipleship life. So that's my first point, have a plan. Second point, read the Bible in context. This is so important. I'm going to take a look at the following picture found on Christian Memes' Facebook page. So can anybody here, once it comes up, so you read that, can anyone here tell me why this is a little shocking? So do we know who said it? You read it carefully, it should, should hopefully come clear, but yeah, that's Satan, Satan saying that, and someone's found that and put it on, uh, you know, make you feel good verse scripture of the day calendar, and some unsuspecting Christians have read it and go, oh yes, as long as I worship, you know, the whole thing will be mine. Worship Satan—that's kind of bad. Maybe reading that verse in context would have helped the person making the scripture feel good a day calendar thingo. Would have helped them not include that one. So reading the Bible in context means to simply read whole books, whole chunks at a time. So don't just read the isolated verses. There's going to be conditions placed on those verses that you need to read, things that you need to meet in order to take a hold of that. Um, have, let's have a look at another example. We've got Matthew 7.1. This, this is a classic one. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. But good. I'm good, right? Full stop, that's me, Christian Joe. We stop right there, we never judge anything. Do not judge. That's what it says, right? Then we explain this next scripture, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. That's blatant. Are you not to judge those inside? Judge those inside the church. This is where you've got to read the whole Bible. You've got to read things in context. Why don't we go back to Matthew 7.1, see what it actually says. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So it's a little different now, isn't it? It's a little different to what we read in isolation. It doesn't say to never judge. This verse actually speaks much more strongly about simply making sure we take a look at ourselves first before we go and speak into other people's lives. We have to judge our brothers and sisters in Christ if we're effectively to lead them out of sin and harmful behaviour. So, we need to read the Bible in context. Don't just read those isolated verses. This will deepen our understanding of what God is saying to us through his word. So, three. Number one, have a plan. Number two, read in context. And number three... We need to question what we're reading and about how it applies to my life, to what I see in life, to the culture that I'm in. What does this say? Often when I'm reading my Bible, I pose myself this question, and I find it really helps from switching from that passive, all the words fall out the other ear reading, to actually actively investing in the word. Because I really love writing, I actually have started, and it's actually dropped off this habit, it was really helpful when I did it, I actually started to write down something that struck me, and then through writing, I would write like a little blog about what I thought about it, and I found that helped to help me to invest in what I'm writing. So I read my five chapters for the day, and force myself to stop before it falls out that other ear, and then think about what exactly has struck me about what, what I just read. And then I write the verses, and I write, like I said, that little blog. Now, you guys don't need to do that. You don't need to write anything down if you don't want to. But you need to come up with a way so that you're posing these questions over in your mind. You're thinking about what you've read. It's not just falling out the other ear. Here's one. I thought what we'd do is we'd actually... I'll show you how this happened. I actually did this recently. This is sort of like a practice one for you guys. This is one that struck me recently. So, Romans 4.18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed so he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, it was that phrase at the top that really struck me at the beginning of that verse. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. I didn't know what to think of that. That doesn't make sense to me. How can he be against hope and in hope at the same time? The words are used right next to each other. Does that mean that they're the same, they're the same word? How can you be against hope and in it at the same time? And what does that look like in my life? So as we move on our practice scripture, we move to my next point, which is number four. to so number one, have a plan. Number two, reading context. Three, question, how does this apply to my life? And four, we need to read about the Bible. Now, reading about the Bible should never replace actually reading the Bible ever, The Bible needs to be at the forefront of our reading experience. But we would do God, I think, a great disservice if we were going to ignore what he's placed in the world, which is a whole bunch of teachers who have read extensively about the Bible and who have written extensively about the Bible. So getting a commentary, and I brought some examples here. Look at this. Look at this. This is a concordance. Look how much goodness is in that. It's so full. And then this other one, which I won't even bother picking up is my Matthew-Henry commentary on the whole Bible. Look how chock full of awesomeness those two things are. So cool. Um, So getting a concordance, getting a study Bible, getting a commentary, even just bringing up things that you've read with your friends, your Christian friends who are on the same journey as you, that's going to greatly deepen your Bible reading. So let's take a look at our practice passage in that light. What did the Matthew-Henry commentary actually say on Romans 4.18? There was a hope against him, a natural hope. All the arguments of sense and reason and experience, which in such cases usually beget and support hope, were against him. No second causes smiled upon him, nor in the least favoured his hope, but against all those inducements to the contrary, he believed, for he had a hope in him. He believed in hope, which arose as his faith did, from the consideration of God's all sufficiency that he might become the father of many nations. Therefore God, by his almighty grace, enabled him thus to believe against hope that he might pass for a pattern of great and strong faith to generations. So I'll stop there. It keeps going for a long, long time. But I hope you can see, just even by reading that, how much more deeply you can then invest in that verse that I read out before. So Abraham, against all worldly hope, had the hope of God. And that's something that we can all take away. We can all live with that now in our hearts. And that deepens our reading of the Bible. So you need to read the Bible first, but also read about what you're reading because it will help to deepen your understanding. So studying the nerd, word. We need a plan to study the word effectively in its entirety. And in our plan, we need to read, set a, set a goal, two chapters, four chapters, five chapters a day. Make a choice, stick to it, And then we need to read in context. We need to question what is said in the Bible and how it applies to us. And we need to read about what we're reading. All of these and the Holy Spirit speaking to us will deepen our understanding of God's Word and our intimacy with Him. So, that was point number one, studying of the Word. Point number two, daily disciplines of an effective disciple is worship. And I'm not going to speak at length about worship today because it's such a deep, huge topic. Um, I don't feel like I could do the depth and breadth of it justice simply by sitting up here for even, even an hour talking about it. Um, but hooray, yes, good for us. Uh, the next sermon series at Lifehouse Church is going to be all about worship. Um, and so they're going to be talking, just an introduction about the heart of worship going to be looking at the tabernacle, Old Testament styles of worship, some really cool stuff. Uh, So I can't wait for that. But before we move on, I do want to just make one point about worship by using a story. When I first came to Lifehouse, I was a very young Christian. I think I'd accepted Christ into my heart maybe one and a half to two years before coming here. And Lifehouse was really the first church that I'd Became a part of. You know, I'd gone to church before, but I'd never actually had a had a church family until I was blessed enough to find uh, all of you. And so to say that I found all the hand raising and kneeling and all of that a bit weird is a massive understatement. I thought you were all insane. I'd gone to church once uh, when someone was trying to. Uh, minister to me as I was one of those unsafe people in the world. They were trying to, let's get Ben to church. And they brought me to this church and they had a whole bunch of people. And during worship, they said they stopped and they, okay, everyone come up and grab a flag. And everyone came up and grabbed these. They weren't just flags, but you know the flags the Olympic athletes have with the big long, you can chuck them in the air and they do all the, I don't know what it's called. It's amazing looking, but it didn't look so amazing that night. And I thought to myself, how on earth is that honoring God? I don't understand that at all. Who am I surrounded by? Uh, So when I came to Lifehouse and I stood uh, next to my then girlfriend, now wife, and she worshipped and I saw her raise her hands a lot, I said nothing, but deep down I thought, what have I gotten myself into? What sort of a crazy cult is this? And a few months go by, and passive little Ben says absolutely nothing because, you know, don't want to buck the boat. But eventually, I think we were driving somewhere, and I mentioned it to her something along the lines of I don't understand why everybody raises their hands in worship. I don't get it. It looks weird, and I don't ever feel like I should do it. And if I do this, and I don't feel it in my heart to do this, aren't I a fraud? Like, that's faking it. I don't want to fake it. That's lying, right? And Lena, bless her, said something like, well, worship... No, (laughs) this is where the meme... Sorry, I'll try and put it nicely. She said, Worship isn't actually about you, Ben. It's about God and what he wants. And it might sound crazy, but that completely flipped on its head my idea of what worship was. I thought I went to worship to get some good feelings. Man, I feel good today. I worship God. I feel just comforted by his presence. I thought that's what it was all about. But that's not worship. That's selfishness. That's kind of greedy. We raise our hands to God because he wants us to. That's it. Full stop. Nehemiah 8, 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Psalm 63.4, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Psalm 47.1-7, clap your hands, all you nations, shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets, Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing to him a psalm of praise. Now he could say, those are just some examples of how some people did it in the Old Testament back in the day. Worship's different now, we got some rock guitars, it's a little different. I worship God in the way that I worship God, it's different for me. The thing is, worship's not different. God is unchanging. In his word, he explicitly shows us what he wants. Just yesterday, I made a sandwich for Lena, and I just made it, I'm sure every husband on earth has ever done this, and every wife as well. I just made it assuming she'd like what I was doing. And so I made a carbon copy of my sandwich, because I know what flavor is, right? That's the best type of sandwich. But she came out and her jaw dropped in horror. I'd made a sandwich, not a wrap. I'd used the wrong bread, And you do sound mean in this story. (laughs) And I'd chosen the wrong meat, I'd put not enough salad on, etc. But the point is, I should have made my wife a sandwich the way she wanted a sandwich to be made. In the same way, we need to worship God the way God wants us to worship Him. Not how we think He wants us to worship Him. If He asks us to clap, we should clap. Because it's about what He wants, not what we want. In fact, clapping, or kneeling, or dancing, or bowing, or any of those things that make us look like a weirdo, that's a very deep type of worship, because you are sacrificing your sense of pride in front of people for what God wants you to do. Worship should cost you, and it should cost you things like pride. In our hearts as we worship, we need to be focused squarely on God. That's it. Worship is God-focused. So we need to move what we desire out of the way, fall flat on our face, and lift up our hands, because he's mighty, awesome, and all-powerful, and he deserves for us to worship him the way he wants us to worship, not how we think he does. So, point number three of an effective daily disciple discipline lifestyle. We've looked at studying the Word, we've looked at worship. The third discipline is prayer. Prayer. Prayer is something every disciple needs to be effectively doing every day. Jesus did it. We need to follow his lead. As Derek Prince said, who I've taken notes from liberally for this section of my sermon, prayer is one of the greatest opportunities, one of the greatest privileges, and one of the greatest ministries available to all Christians. Jesus loved to teach with parables. He taught a lot of different lessons through story, and parables, and the disciples had to draw conclusions from it. But when he was teaching about prayer, he was very, very specific. He said, do it this way. This is how you pray. We need to do that. We need to do as he commands. We can't just start asking for stuff like God is some genie granting wishes for us. We need to be quiet and still, listen for his prompting, and pray as he would have you pray." This is probably the most important element to an effective prayer life. Simply asking God, taking a moment, what, what do you want me to pray? What, what, what sort of section of my life do you want me to pray into this morning or this afternoon? Have you ever tried that? I know I often just start to blurt out a list of things I want or even I think I want, and then I say amen, and then off I go. I don't give God any breathing space. I don't listen to what he wants me to pray. Maybe the things I want aren't actually good for me. Maybe the things I'm praying for wouldn't actually deepen my character. Maybe when we think God's not answering our prayers, he's answering them. He's just not answering what you're praying. He's answering them in a different way, his way. Because he knows better. He knows better what we need than what we think we need. One key phrase from the prayer of Jesus offers a pattern for us, for us which is our Father, uh, your, who art in heaven. Um, that last, one of those last phrases, your will be done. Your will, Lord. And then really walking in that. I'm really passionate about my writing. And when I first started to enter competitions with short stories and things like that, um, I used to just pray for victory because, you know, that's what I wanted. Uh, so I would just, you know, I'd submit it and I'd just say, Lord, just bless that story, you know, make it super powerful and people reading it, just, you know, hit them in the face with just how awesome that story is and they just want to publish it and then get it published and have the whole world read it. Amen, thank you. I've since shifted from that. And so, <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, before I even submit a short story, before I even write one, I now ask, what do you want me to write? And then I ask, where do you want me to submit? And then my prayer simply becomes your will, your will for that story, Lord. And I just ask for the courage to deal with the rejection if it happens. I want you to deepen my character if that, my story gets rejected. I want you to deepen my character if my story gets accepted, your will. This has really changed my prayer life. Sometimes I simply pray for blessing, however God wants. Just bless me today, Lord, however you want to bless me, in whatever way you want. Bless me with just you today. Have you guys ever tried this? Have you ever tried simply praying by asking, what do you want me to pray right now? Try it out, if you haven't done that. So I want to sum up how prayer is supposed to function by using an analogy, a symphony. This is a perfectly apt word considering the root word of agree, which we actually see in this scripture. So Matthew eighteen, nineteen to 20, again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So agree here stems from the Greek word symphono, which is, of course, symphono, also where the word symphony comes from. So in prayer, we need to be in symphony with one another, and we need to be in symphony with the Holy Spirit. There are three basic components to a symphony. You've got the conductor, the person up the front, and you've got the score, what everyone's reading and checking, and then you've got the orchestra, the people sitting around you. So in our symphony of prayer, the conductor is the Holy Spirit, who guides our praying if we do the right thing and actually look at him. So if we just focus on our own guitar playing and we're looking down at ourselves, we're not focused on what the Holy Spirit wants us to be doing. We could be completely out of sync. We need to follow the conductor's directions and then we need to read the score. And that score is God's will. So you need to look at the conductor, listening to the Holy Spirit, watching the Holy Spirit for prompting. And you need to read the score, which is God's predetermined, predestined look at what he wants you to pray at that moment in time right then. And you need to be reading that and you need to be following that direction. And finally, the orchestra people we're surrounded with is, of course, us, the church. When we gather together, we need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, following his lead, and in that, praying together in symphony. So in prayer, we need to focus on God's will for our lives. The Holy Spirit conductor and the godly score and pray into that. And we pray, as I mentioned in the first part of this sermon, because we're commanded to. So Romans twelve twelve: rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. This is actually mentioned a lot of times in scripture. We need to discipline ourselves to pray every day as often as possible. And this requires discipline. Some of us may feel like praying sometimes, but I'd suggest the majority of us never really feel like doing it, not until we've really started to walk with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit prompting us for prayer, or we're in crisis. Those are the two times that we might feel like actually praying. But we need to start to move past what we feel like doing and start to enact discipline and do it because we're commanded. So you need to make space for prayer in your day and actively start to pray into God's will because we're commanded to. So, point number four. We've had a look at studying the word. We've had a look at worship. And we've had a look at prayer. So the final part of our daily disciplines is going to bring us all the way back Right to my very first sermon uh, in this series. Now, one day, it could be possible that uh, David Thomas will finish his series on deception in the church. I'm not counting on it. I'm not counting on it, honestly, before Jesus returns. But um, if he does, which David, seriously, it's an excellent series and it's necessary, absolutely. Absolutely. If it finishes, you'll be able to go back and download my first sermon, which was all about making disciples. And so if you remember a few points, we have to lead, and we have to provide an example for our disciple to follow. We have to serve God, and in so doing, serve our disciple. But, so to change that, I want to I really sum up, finish today on a slightly separate point. Something that I think sums up this entire sermon series. None of this is possible if we try and do it in our own strength. So Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Isaiah 40.29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. 2 Corinthians 12.9 and 10, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We have to believe that Christ's strength is in us because he gives it to us freely and because it says that in the word. Once we have faith that he has placed his strength in us and we have admitted our own weaknesses and our own failures and how utterly useless we are without Him, then we can step out in His strength. And it's that strength that's going to sustain us. All the disciplines and all the plans in the world would be entirely useless without Christ giving us that strength to sustain us in them. For a very long time, I really, really struggled to go to gym Persistently, How long was it, David, that it took me? Four or five years, easily. And I would dream up every excuse known to man, but what it essentially boiled down to was, my flesh wins today. No, thank you. God had called me out for me to look after this temple that he dwells in. That's scriptural, looking after this temple of the Holy Spirit. And instead, I kept having naps. And I kept trying, you know, I kept setting alarms or goals or writing down lists of things. I even took an A4 piece of paper and stuck it up beside my bed and I wrote a bunch of mean stuff to myself to get me off my butt. Do you want to be dead? Seriously, you will die soon. If you don't change your life, get off your butt. None of this, not a single part of it had any lasting effect. I'd maybe last at best two or three days, but after that, the flesh would come back up the old habit patterns and it would want that food it would want those naps and those excuses it wasn't until i admitted that i was a complete failure and i cried out to god for him to help me and i started doing this every single day that i was able to sustain a completely new discipline and it's every single day that i still have to do this every day the flesh is saying have a nap go to sleep, it will feel good. David will yell at you at Jim to motivate me. That's why he yells. But because of Christ, because I have his strength, his motivation, finally I'm able to say, no naps, I'm there. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be disciplined today. Now, I'm not super fantastic at Jim, but you know what? I've stepped one step closer to a new godly discipline and away from my flesh. Liv actually spoke on this a couple of weeks ago. She said, to be an effective disciple, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to change us. We have to stop forcing our will on him and allow him to shift our characters and our habit patterns. That's the essence of discipleship. Giving up our lives, allowing him to change us. That's it. Giving up our lives, allowing him to change us. It's very simple, but it also isn't simple. It takes disciplined, daily, a thousand small decisions every day to be an effective disciple. That's why it's called the narrow path. I'm going to leave you guys with a question. When Jesus comes back, which could be quite soon, and looks you in the eye, are you going to say to him, I was gonna get to that. I'm sorry, I just, I had a few naps instead. I would've done this, I would've done this part of your will, but I didn't really feel like it at the time. I wanted to watch the final finale of MasterChef instead. Sorry. Or are you gonna say, here I stand, your son or your daughter, and here is how I've invested the talents you gave me. What are you gonna say? And what are you doing today to help you say it?